Last week, someone was telling me about a period in history, describing something she'd been learning about, and she said it was from 200 to 700 BC. What's wrong with that? It was from 200 to 700 BC. I might be being a bit picky here, but what's wrong with that? It's the wrong way round, yes. The years BC don't work like that, do they? It should be 700 to 200 BC. Because those years BC, they're rather confusing. They're counting down. They go down as you go along. They're counting down to what? Oh, to the birth of Jesus Christ. That's remarkable, isn't it? Do you stop and think about how remarkable that is? Our way of measuring history is all centred around Jesus Christ. The dates that are used in history departments in universities by professors who don't believe in Jesus are all centred around him. They're either counting down to him or counting on from him. He is the centre of history. No one has shaped human history anywhere near as much as him. The most significant man who's ever lived. Who is he? What do you think of him? How do you respond to him? Well, today I simply want to show you him. The the main aim of what I'm doing is simply to show you him. And let's see him from Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. Luke chapter 19, verse 28 to 44. Page numbers are on the pink sheet, if that helps you. Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. Luke's gospel is all about showing you Jesus. That's the aim of the gospel. It's not a manual for how to live a good life. Here are some instructions what to do if you want to live a good life. No, it's showing you Jesus who came for those whose lives are not good enough. That's what it's all about. Well, what is this section in front of us, Luke 19, verse 28 to 44, what is this section particularly showing you about Jesus? Well, the starting verse is very significant. I didn't ask Joanna to comment on it, but what I'm going to say is exactly the same as her comment, actually. Verse 28, after Jesus had said this, little phrase we could skip over, but it's telling you, very importantly, this follows exactly from what Jesus had just said. This follows precisely from the parable that Seth preached to us last week. A parable about a man being appointed as king but many didn't want him for their king. There's that really significant verse back in verse 14. The people say, we don't want this man to be our king. That's that's important to keep that in your mind this morning. People say, we don't want this man to be our king. But there were others who did serve him. And so the parable ends with some being blessed and others being judged. Now verse 28 says, what you're about to hear follows hot on the heels of that. It's completely linked, because now it's telling us some history that makes clear Jesus is that king, and that he's a king who divides opinion, with the result that some find peace in him and others are destroyed. So what sort of king is he? Let's find out by going through this true story of Jesus arriving at Jerusalem. Let's follow him as he approaches Jerusalem. And first of all, as he prepares to go, 
we find a king in control despite appearing weak. This is verse 29 to 36. Imagine you're one of the two disciples Jesus sent to fetch a donkey. And you go into the nearest village, and on the way in you see a colt, a young donkey, tied to a fence post. Jesus told you to untie it, so you do, but a little nervously, because it doesn't belong to you or to him. And so you're wondering quite what's going to happen. And while you're fiddling with the knot, the owners walk up and say, what are you doing untying our donkey? And you say, the Lord needs it. And strangely, this funny phrase seems to make sense to them. At least they seem happy because they say, okay then, off you go with the donkey. And you bring it to Jesus, but you've got no saddle. So you throw some coats over the donkey, and then you give him a hand up onto the donkey, and on Jesus goes on the nodding, plodding donkey. And as he approaches the city, well, there's people around on the road, and they spread their coats on the road as a rough and ready homemade carpet for him. That's what you'd see if you were one of those disciples. And it all appears pathetic and weak. Let's compare it with a proper ruler coming somewhere. Well, I just said proper ruler, and I might annoy some of you now by calling you a proper ruler. Donald Trump coming to England for a state visit. How did he arrive? Oh, on a jet called Air Force One. And he brought with him a whole load of cars and then he was driven around in one called The Beast. This bulletproof, bombproof, massive car with a cavalcade of motors and an 18 million pound security operation. Compare that with Jesus. He doesn't look like any sort of king, let alone the centre of all human history king. Pathetic, weak, poor. And yet, and yet, he's in control, if you look carefully. He tells his disciples exactly where they will find a donkey. He knows the owners will let the disciples take it. He knows the owners will recognise Jesus as the Lord when they simply say the Lord needs it. See verse 34, they replied, the Lord needs it. That's It's actually very unusual for Jesus to be called the Lord before his resurrection. It's a very exalted term. And especially, he's in control of where he's going. Verse 28, again, is a very important verse, and it sets the whole theme. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. After giving a story about a man who's going to be appointed king, it says, now exactly after this, Jesus went to the capital city. Do you get the message? And this little phrase, he's going up to Jerusalem, is far more significant than it looks, because Luke's gospel has all along been showing us Jesus going up to Jerusalem. So, for example, chapter 9, verse 51, don't worry about turning to it, I'll read it to you. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And Luke's storyline is Jesus heading to Jerusalem. 
In fact, you see even more the importance of this if you put together Luke's two books. Luke wrote two books. His volume one we call Luke's Gospel. His volume two we call Acts. Now, in his first book, Luke's Gospel, you're all the time being taken towards Jerusalem. It starts with themes of the Gentiles and it heads towards Jerusalem. In his second book, Acts, it starts at Jerusalem and then it's heading out all the time, out, out, out into the rest of the world. And put the two of them together and what is Luke telling us? He's telling us it's all about Jesus going to Jerusalem, where by dying, rising and ascending to heaven, he'll be made king. And then it's all about spreading out his rule by his heralds proclaiming Jesus is Lord. That was just a brief summary of Luke and Acts, if you put them together. And at the centre is Jesus being made king at Jerusalem. This man, who has to borrow a donkey to ride over people's coats as a fake red carpet, is totally in control. He knows where he's going and what he's doing. Have you seen Jesus, who's in control despite appearing so weak. And what does that mean for you and I today? You and me, sorry about my poor English there. You and me today. Will you live by appearances or by faith? Will you live by appearances or by faith? If you walk around the streets of London, what do you see? Well, you'll see some really big, impressive offices of banks and of the BBC, and occasionally you'll see a little church overshadowed by the big plush offices, possibly looking in need of a bit of repair. And if you're there on a Sunday, you'll see a few very ordinary people walking in. Whereas the banks and the BBC, they can recruit the best talents around. Those people walking into church, they represent Jesus. Is he really the one with power? Or think ahead to your week at work. What will you hear? Will you hear conversations about Jesus ruling? Or are you more likely to hear the name of Jesus used to express annoyance when something's gone wrong? Is Jesus really king? Does he really have power? Luke's gospel says, don't be put off. This is the way Jesus operates, in control, despite looking weak. This sets what we should expect. Jesus is in control, but his way of operating looks so weak. Will you trust him, or will you be deceived by appearances? Well, let's follow Jesus towards Jerusalem, and we find, secondly, that he's a king who's welcomed and rejected. Verse 37 to 40 is Jesus as a king who's welcomed and rejected. So on Jesus goes towards Jerusalem and he's surrounded by a crowd of his disciples. Notice that in verse 37, it's a crowd of his disciples. Sometimes we say, if you know the story of the the end of the Gospels, Sometimes we say, well, on this day, what we call traditionally Palm Sunday, the crowd praised him. Oh, they're so fickle, because a few days later they're calling out, crucify him. No, that's not actually true. Because this isn't just any old crowd, it's a crowd of his disciples. And they are celebrating. 
They think it's a great day. Why? Well, verse 37 tells us why. Do you see it there? In verse 37, why are they so joyful? Because of all the miracles they've seen. Now, plenty of other people saw Jesus do miracles and weren't there celebrating. But these people have seen what those miracles mean. Back in Luke chapter 7, Jesus' cousin John was doubting who Jesus was. And what was Jesus' response to him? He sent a record of the miracles he was doing. Because the miracles were what the prophets said the Messiah would do. That is the promised king. He would do these miracles and Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Now the disciples on this day, they think about the miracles they've seen and they think about what they're seeing now and they put the two together because they're seeing another prophecy fulfilled. When, when we hear about a man riding a donkey, we think that's a little odd. When do you see someone riding a donkey? Well, possibly a child on a beach or at a fairground. But have you ever seen a grown man riding a donkey? I can't think of a time I have. So we just think that's odd. They would think that's prophecy being fulfilled. I'll read you the prophecy. You can turn to it if you want, but it is Zechariah chapter 9. And I have to admit, I find Zechariah a little hard to find. But if you're quick, you can find Zechariah 9, or you can just listen to me read verses 9 and 10. Here's a prophecy in the Old Testament, and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's a prophecy about a king who would ride a colt, a donkey's foal. It's very specific. Here's a prophecy about a king who would bring salvation, about a king who would bring peace, and about a king who would rule to the ends of the earth. And the disciples, they think of the miracles they've seen, And they think of this prophecy that was well known to Jewish people as being about the Messiah, the promised king, and they put two and two together. And they say, this is who Jesus is. Have you seen them put two and two together? What's the theme of Luke's first book? It's Jesus as saviour. He brings salvation. That's the Zechariah prophecy. What's the theme of Luke's second book? Oh, it's his rule being spread to the ends of the world, starting at Jerusalem and going to the end of, well, the end of the world as they knew it, which was Rome. It's Zechariah's prophecy. And it's come so true. Someone tell us a country beginning with A. Albania. Albania. Is Jesus being worshipped today in Albania? Yes, he is. Country beginning with B. Belgium. Is Jesus being worshipped today in Belgium? Yes, he is. C. Congo. Is Jesus being worshipped today in Congo? 
Yes, he is. We won't do the whole alphabet. But we could go to Z and Zimbabwe. All the way we could go and for everyone we could say, is Jesus being worshipped there today? Yes, he is. Zechariah's prophecy has has come amazingly true. And Luke is telling us how it begins. Jesus is amazing. The man riding on a donkey is worshipped today. This very day, 2nd of February 2020, throughout the world, his rule has extended just how Zechariah said. And so the disciples praise God. Back to Luke 19 and next verse, verse 38. So the disciples praise God. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace in heaven, that's a strange phrase. Hasn't there always been peace in heaven? Why does anyone need to proclaim peace in heaven? Isn't it a place just of perfect peace? What's the point of that phrase? Well, Satan the accuser is going to lose all his power in heaven. He's going to be thrown down. Because Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to take the punishment his people deserve. And so Satan... The accuser can no longer accuse. His power is completely cut from under him. So that we can have peace with the king of heaven, God himself. That phrase, peace in heaven, is far from meaningless. Jesus is going to secure a peace in heaven that in a sense there had never been before. That's reason to celebrate What a plan God has, and Jesus was going to Jerusalem to do it. Or we, from our vantage point, can say Jesus has done it complete. But not everyone is celebrating. So let's move into verse 39. Some of the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, in the crowd, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is outrageous for them to say that about you, this illegitimate son of a carpenter from Nazareth. Rebuke them. It's blasphemous. I hope you realise the Bible is a very precise and reliable book. In verse 38, the disciples praise God using words from Psalm 118. You might have a footnote that tells you that. And if you were to look at Psalm 118, you'd find that just before that, Psalm 118 had said these words. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, the chief stone of the building. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. That was another prophecy. And here Jesus was fulfilling both. He was the stone that God would build his kingdom with, but he was being rejected by the people who should build the building. But the crowds, the peasants, the hoi polloi, they were praising him using the words of Psalm 118. You see, the Bible is an amazingly precise and reliable book. The disciples think Jesus is marvellous. The religious elite think, reject him. Why? Why reject the man who fulfils God's plans? Well, because they're not concerned about God's plan they're concerned about their own plans read through Luke's gospel and consistently you find that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they just want to keep control themselves, they want to keep their position they want to keep things going their way 
And as for peace with God, that doesn't excite them because they presume they've got it already. We're the good guys. We're the religious elite. Of course God's at peace with us. But he isn't. No, he's not. Verse 40. I tell you, Jesus replied to them, if they, the disciples, keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is a warning. Because in the Bible, creation is pictured as crying out if there is a crying injustice. When there's something to be put right and others are not putting it right, creation is pictured as crying out for vengeance, for judgment. And Jesus is saying here, if he is not praised, that is an injustice that calls for God's judgment. In other words, Pharisees, he's saying... You are heading towards God's judgment because you do not praise me. You are not at peace with God. Well, what about you? We've got there two responses to Jesus. Which are you? Welcoming Jesus because he fulfills God's plan or rejecting Jesus because you want to stick with your plan? Celebrating because God's plan is good and you need peace with God or sticking with you being in control because you must have life your way and peace with God. Well, if there is a God, I'm sure he's at peace with me because I'm generally decent. Which are you? Do you know? Did you know that you can be like those Pharisees and be quite regular at church? And even enjoy singing the hymns and taking part. Alice goes to church, but she won't sort a fall out with someone else at church. Because that would mean admitting a fault. And that would disrupt Alice's plan that everyone must think highly of her. Tom goes to church, but he won't give generously in the way that Jesus says. Because that would disrupt Tom's plan for the lifestyle that he must have. Nina goes to church, but she's really on the side of the Pharisees because she wants to keep living with her unbelieving boyfriend. And she won't give up her plan for the way her life must be. Do you see? It's very easy to sit in church, but actually be rejecting God's plan because you must have your plan. So stop and ask yourself again, don't make presumptions, ask yourself again, who are you like? The disciples who say, Jesus is king, my king, that's good news, because I need peace with God. Or the Pharisees who say, no, we must stick with our plan for how our lives will turn out. Well now let's follow Jesus as he comes to the crest of a hill and he overlooks Jerusalem. And we find here a king who brings peace and judgment. This is verse 41 to 44. Show us a king who brings peace and judgment. Queen Elizabeth II has almost never been seen crying in public. Think of any time she's been seen showing a lot of emotion and crying in public? Well, the cameras did catch a tear rolling down her cheek at Remembrance Day 2002 soon after her mother had died. They speculated at the last Remembrance Day that there was a tear coming out of her cheek, but it was so, like, it could just have been she was cold or she blinked. You know how they zoom in and pick up on anything they can. Monarchs, 
especially kings, aren't expected to cry. But here's Jesus, the king, overlooking his capital city and crying. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And the remarkable thing here is not that you've got a king showing emotion. It's that you've got, he's showing it for the people who have rejected him. He's weeping over what will happen to them. He is going to die the worst death ever, but he's not weeping for him. He's weeping for the ones who will kill him. Jesus has compassion even for the people whose hearts are set hard against him. His heart is still soft to them. Jesus brings peace with God and they could have had this peace, Jesus says in verse 42. In Jesus, God had come to them and given them opportunity to be at peace with him, but they shut their eyes to him, Jesus says in verse 44. Now their opportunity was coming to an end. It doesn't last forever. God is so patient. But an end does come to opportunity, Jesus says in verse 42. And so having rejected the king who brings peace, they would get war. They would get judgment. There was a Jewish historian back in, uh, well, around the year 70 AD, who recorded the Romans coming and laying siege to Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And he records how they built a siege wall around the city and ramparts, and they began to starve the people out. And then they breached the city walls and they burnt down the temple and tore down Herod's palace. And Josephus claims they killed 1.1 million people. That's almost certainly untrue. That must be an exaggeration. A more accurate guess is around 350,000 people. Many of them crucified. Crosses lining the streets out of Jerusalem with Jewish people hanging from them. And that's what Jesus is describing in verse 43 and 44. It really happened. Forty years later, it's interesting that 40 is a very significant number in the Bible, an appropriate amount of time given to people to repent. Forty years later, it really happened, a real event in history, which tells you the Bible is reliable and you should believe it. And it also tells you God's judgments are real. They're not just a religious idea. They're not just a metaphor for your life feeling meaningless. God takes real action to punish sin. And God has put it in the Bible here to warn us, to warn you this morning. Jesus is so kind. He is so compassionate. He's the weeping king, not because he's weak, but because he cares. And he wants people to turn to him. And now as I'm presenting Jesus to you, this is the time of God coming to you and offering you peace. You can be at peace with God if you'll recognise Jesus as the king who brings peace as the one that you need. God is offering that to you now, this moment. But if you shut your eyes to him, 
If you turn your back on him, the opportunity doesn't last forever. God can just leave people to go on in their sins. Jesus is so compassionate, but he is no walkover. He is a real king. He came the first time to bring peace, but he's coming a second time to bring justice, judgment, punishment for sin. And it will be no less real and no less terrible than that destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And we will all be there. Well, Luke chapter 19 has this repeated theme of seeing. I wonder if you noticed that as, as it was read. It talks about seeing quite a lot. It began with a man, Zacchaeus, who climbed up a tree because he wanted to see Jesus. In the middle, we have disciples celebrating because of the miracles they'd seen and they'd seen what they meant as well. But the chapter ends with people who have Jesus hidden from them because when they'd had their chance, they'd refused to see who he was and what they should do about that. Have you seen Jesus? Have you, this morning, seen something of who he is? Will you shut your eyes to who he is and how you should respond to him? Or will you have this man to be king over you?